A Lazy Morning from Cucumber Chronicles by Joseph Ashby Sterry. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Lazy Morning I have no doubt in my own mind that if any one were to look upon me at this present moment, they would say I was very lazy. It is a lovely morning, and I am by the sea. Two of the very best excuses for laziness any one in his senses will at once exclaim, and I am inclined to agree with him. I am seated on an ancient, picturesque, weed-covered, wave-washed, weather-beaten, broken-down wooden groin. It is beclamped with rusty ironwork, it is riveted with gigantic red nuts, and it is bepatched and supported by stalwart struts and timbers. Its very decrepitude and the frequency with which it has been altered, added to, and refurbished, gives it its principal charm. At the lower end, where it slopes into the sea, it is covered with brown and yellow seaweed, which goes off with a pop when trodden upon, to the intense delight of countless children who are endeavouring to get as near suicide as possible without drowning themselves all day long. This is varied by a slippery green weed, which, by reason of its false foothold, gives assistance to the children in pursuit of self-destruction, and barnacle-covered timbers, which tend considerably towards the rasping and excoriation of youthful knees. The upper end of the groin where I am sitting is free of weed, it is bleached and sun-dried, and by reason of the irregularity of its timbers, and the way in which they have been repaired, and then suddenly wrenched out of their position, and smacked about by the violence of the waves, you may discover all kinds of comfortable nooks, places sheltered from the wind and quiet corners, quite as easy as your own easy chair, and where you are not near so likely to be disturbed by callers. Another thing, there are no letter-boxes, or door-knockers, or bell-pulls on the groin, so no letters can be delivered. If I caught a postman trying to deliver a letter to me now, on the strength of knowing me by sight, by St. Martin Le Grand, I would report him to the postmaster-general. And if one of those young rascals of telegraph boys arrived with one of those horrible cinnamon-coloured envelopes, I should be seriously inclined to drop him into the sea, telegram and all. If you want to select a comfortable seat by the seashore, just note those that are affected by jovial old ladies who come for a morning's hard novel-reading under an umbrella, and you will not be far wrong. I observed this place was selected by one of the experienced yesterday, so this morning I came early and secured it, and I find it in every way satisfactory. I have a comfortable back to lean against, I have a rest for my feet, and while I can revel in the glorious sunshine, I am well protected from the wind. I have brought out with me a favourite author, but I do not read him. I have something better to read in the surrounding scene. Why weary my eyes with commonplace type when I can gaze on the sea as it sparkles in the sunshine, as it changes and flickers with the cloud shadows, when I can watch the varieties of silvery grey, the lines of deep purple, the lines of malachite come and go with a ceaseless change and rechange? How can I hope to get on with a story when I find myself compelled to read to a tune? An old friend of mine does not like music at dinner, because he says he always feels obliged to eat to the tune. Reading to a tune is nearly as bad, 
as one feels compelled to keep time to the ceaseless murmur of the waves on the shingle. This has been compared by someone to the reading of the psalms by the priest and congregation in some secluded country church. This morning the priest is somewhat feeble, and there is a sparse congregation, but still it would materially interfere with my reading. I do not like a shingly shore to walk upon, but for giving you a good clear sea close in shore, and for its interpretation of the music of the waves in some of its most delicate passages, there is nothing like it. It would perhaps be, I am suddenly startled by a whine of pleasure, and find a cold nose thrust into my hand. I look up and see it is Dog. Who and what is Dog, you ask? Well, he is an animal of no particular breed. He is something between a second-hand setter and a depraved Newfoundland. He has no owner, no home, and no name, but he is known to everybody as Dog. He is everybody's friend. All the children pull his ears, ride on his back, or smother him with shingle. He is continually running races or swimming for sticks off the end of the groin. He apparently lives on pebbles, seaweed, and buns. He is a thin, spare dog, whose coat would probably be silky if it were not for salt, and curly if it had time to dry. He is a bohemian dog, who never did much good for himself, and sometimes it pleasures him hugely to outrage society. Nothing delights him better than to bring a stick out of the water and place it down in the very midst of a lot of well-dressed little ladies and gentlemen, and then shake himself violently and fling off countless aqueous catherine wheels over the entire company. Dog is most indefatigable. Nothing would please him better than to incite me to go and fling my walking-stick into the sea at the present moment. As long as I would throw it in, he would go in after it. I am quite too lazy, however for any gymnastics of such a nature this morning. I look down on my book. The bright sunshine on the white page dazzles my eyes. I look up again. A steamer is passing along in the distance, leaving a long thread of brown smoke on the horizon. A pretty white-hulled, lateen-sailed boat is skimming along with the light breeze. The two bathing machines are down close to the water's edge. Dog has just run off barking with a child's pail, and a lot of children after him. There is a group of nurses, babies, and perambulators just below me. There are three brown-faced boatmen smoking short pipes at the windlass, and there is a group of pretty girls pretending to work and read, but really succeeding in doing nothing but chatter, under the shadow of a sailing boat. This group reminds me strikingly of a sketch by John Leach. Indeed, the whole scene reminds me of a picture by Leach. The bit of shore... The bathing machines, the babies, the sea, the sky, the girls and the boatmen are unmistakably leechesque. And what marvellous colour he always got into his sketches. You could see that his skies were blue, that his girls had rosy cheeks, and that his huntsmen had red coats, though he only drew in black and white. Those two machines are entirely devoted to ladies. We men go out in a boat a long distance off, You will see some of us come back with towels presently. We are very proud of those towels, and are pretty well occupied all the morning. Very few girls look well in bathing costumes, and those who cannot swim look silly. Why they should bob about and indulge in ridiculous antics because they happen to wear tunics and trousers in the water instead of petticoats and jackets on dry land, I find difficult to understand. As the bathers get clothed, you find an increase of ladies with their hair hanging out to dry. 
and as the morning advances we have quite a competitive exhibition of all hues, lengths and qualities, which is well worth inspection. What a peal of laughter! What a scampering along the cliff pathway! What a clambering over the fence! A girl of twelve puts her hand on the top rail and vaults over it as neatly as possible. A light-hearted lot of laughing lasses. They are too big for the nursery and too little for the restrictions of young ladyhood. They enjoy the seaside prodigiously. A merry, romping, short-petticoated, black-stockinged, snowy-frilled crew they are. They are sisters, cousins, friends. They are continually quarrelling and making it up. They play violent games. They clamber about the groin like boys. They pelt one another, and they fall in the water. A bonny bevy of sunburnt girls. I don't know one of them personally but they talk so much that you can soon learn their family history. I learned all their names in five minutes. Laughing young lasses in very short clothes, Mabel and Connie and Poppy and Rose, racing and romping all Rosie and Bonnie, Rosie and Poppy and Mabel and Connie, winsome young maidens for artists to copy, Connie and Rosie and Mabel and Poppy. To tell you their surnames I'm really unable, Poppy and Connie and Rosie and Mabel. Oh yes, I know. Some purist will tell me clothes and rose is not a good rhyme. Perhaps not. Did not one Robert Herrick write many years ago? Then, then, methinks how sweetly flows that liquefaction of her clothes. What was good enough for Herrick is good enough for me. Besides, it's really too much trouble to dispute about rhymes this morning. The four laughing lasses have been rapturously welcomed by Dog, and the whole crew have madly raced down to the water's edge. There is, I should mention, one individual who enacts the part of thorn or crumpled rose-leaf on this pleasant shore. It is the demon babe. I have a shrewd suspicion that his godfathers and his godmothers did not give him that name. He seems to be an exceedingly respectable baby, well-fed, well-dressed, and his parents, I should say, are without doubt in affluent circumstances. His perambulator is magnificent, dark blue picked out with scarlet, brasswork beautifully polished, and the interior well cushioned. It has a nice green awning, too, to prevent his babyship getting grilled in the sun. But he is always being left about. I wonder he has not been stolen long ago for the sake of his perambulator. What his nurse does with herself I don't know. She may be in love with one of the boatmen or the man who works the bathing machine windless, or she may go a-bathing herself. Anyhow, she disappears. She brings her charge down about ten o'clock, and takes him away again at a quarter to one. Between those times he is very much left about. He does not appear to find the time hang heavy on his hands, for anybody who pleases may shove his carriage about, and leave it in any part of the beach. He does not seem to mind. He rarely cries but he takes a prodigious lot of notice, and he stares. Ye gods, how he stares! Someone has just left him in front of me, and he is staring hard at me. I am always afraid of being left alone with a child of tender years, but to be left alone with the demon babe is something appalling. He waggles his head at me. He is evidently reckoning me up, and thinking what a very bad man I must be. He stares harder. His eyes become lobsterous like unto those of Major Bagstock. He holds his breath and swells himself out like a ball. He grows red. I'm afraid he is going to have a fit. He gets purple. 
also like unto Major Bagstock, I wonder whether I ought to shake him up. And he regards me so fiercely that I feel quite uncomfortable. He is the oddest baby I ever saw. He delights to make the most hideous grimaces. At one time he will wrinkle up his face to look like an ancient monkey. At another he will shake that small head so solemnly that he looks wiser than ever Lord Thurlow did. Further than this terrible staring propensity he does not trouble anyone much. Beyond thumping on his leather strap and gurgling in an unknown tongue, he has very little to say. But if you feel rather irritable and nervous, and the demon babe is planted suddenly in front of you, and left there and begins to stare, it will undoubtedly give you the jumps. Dear me, I think I must have dropped off to sleep. I recollect the demon babe staring at me. I dare say he mesmerised me. He is gone, at any rate. I must find out who his parents are. They should not allow him to go about mesmerising people. I find I have dropped my book down on the shingle, and it is a good thing it was not washed away by the sea. The party of pretty girls under the fishing boat are looking at their watches and packing up their things previous to starting. The bathing is all finished, and a copper-coloured rugose old lady is hanging out the costumes to dry. Dog has just shambled by, and looked as if he wanted somebody to ask him to dinner. Mabel, Poppy, and the rest of that crew are scrambling over the railings, instead of going through the gate and up the cliff path in an orderly and decorous fashion. And, save the ceaseless lullaby of the waves on the shingle, our pleasant lounging ground is well-nigh silent and deserted. I have spent a very delightful lazy morning with a lot of people I do not know. I feel very hungry, and I think I had better go to luncheon. End of a Lazy Morning from the Cucumber Chronicles by Joseph Ashby Sterry Read by Ted Hanlon